0: Normally what we do is have discussion questions around tables, but we're going to have um, a lot to discuss tonight, and so I want us to have enough time for all of that. So without further ado, can we welcome Scott McKnight? <laughs> and y'all, Scott um, and his wife, Chris, flew all the way from Illinois um to be with us now there is a conference happening that they were coming for but they changed their plans They came a whole day early to come and be with us at midweek in the city so we're really grateful that you are here and that you're willing to share with us and so if here we can trade and i'll move over to this or you sure um and so y'all he has written an amazing amount of books this is the one that i have been showing everybody so revelation for the rest of us is his newest book um, and so we. This is what we're giving away tonight. So make sure your name is in the bowl. Um, we'll do that at the end. Um, but Scott is um, a New Testament professor at Northern Seminary, um, and I'm just so glad that you're with us. So thank you for joining us. Thank you. Yeah.
1: And we found out. Is this mic on? Yes. Yeah. There you go. We found out that uh, that you're from Rockford, Illinois. Yeah. Twenty miles from where my wife and I grew up. Yeah. So. I know. And we meet in San Antonio.
0: (laughs) Yeah. All roads lead to San Antonio somehow.
1: (laughs) So. Yeah. All right. So, want me to talk? Sure. Okay. (laughs) All right. um, I've been teaching for 41 years, all right, as a professor. And I can tell you that most people don't want to talk about the book of Revelation. (laughs) And those who do, I don't want to be around. (laughs) because I'm likely to get in trouble with it. <laughs> and what I mean by that is uh, a lot of people have, I think you could say, have been spiritually abused by the book of Revelation. Mm. That they they watched, um, I can never remember, Thief in the Night, Thief in the Night. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And they read Hal Lindsey or they read the Left Behind series um, or you know, they just were Um, coerced Mm -hmm. by the thought that Jesus could come back tonight and if you don't give your life to Jesus you're going to hell. And they'll describe the awful scenes in the book of Revelation as a way of coercing people. And I can't tell you the number of students I've had whenever I've just uh, talked for a day about the book of Revelation in a survey course Or when a couple years ago, three or four years ago, I taught an entire course on the book of Revelation who said to me, I couldn't believe that you were teaching Revelation. I mean, why? Why are you doing this? And I told him, I said, my goal is to make you like this book. Hmm. And I think that there's a way of reading the book of Revelation that can uh, take us away from the Left Behind series and any form of spiritual abuse and so I'd like to talk a little bit about that tonight and uh, I'm sensitive to spiritual abuse so if you think I'm getting too harsh let me know. Uh, I can handle that because I'm leaving. (laughs) But uh, a lot of interpretations of the book of Revelation have been bizarre and they've been connected to what I call speculation and that is the basic idea of reading Revelation is you try to figure out who in the world today is fulfilling the prediction of who in the book of Revelation. So who is the Antichrist, which you know the book of Revelation never mentions the Antichrist. There's the beast from the sea and the beast from the land. But well, they put them together sort of, false prophets, etc. And And they, they ask the question of who in the world fits this, and in my lifetime— uh, I can remember people talking about Stalin as the Antichrist. Uh, I, you have to be of a certain age to remember where you could talk about that because it had to be before he died, and um, I was there, bar- barely. I don't remember Hitler, but he would have been a really good candidate for a lot of people. <laughs> I remember Khrushchev being the, the Antichrist because he was from Russia, and that was America's enemy, so that had to be the Antichrist. Mm. Um, because of our political theology. I remember when in college that Henry Kissinger, for some people, mm-hmm. was the Antichrist. Uh, others were Gorbachev, and he had a birthmark that really
3: oh got the connection
1: <laughs> of the mark of the beast. And, oh my and that was, there were a lot of people talking about this at that time. Oh, wow. Now, uh, many people would say Vladimir Putin is the Antichrist, because of what he's done to Ukraine. And, of course, he's from Russia. And if you've paid attention to how this works, a lot of people in the history of reading the book of Revelation uh, have connected Gog and Magog in Ezekiel to Russia. And so, therefore, uh, the Russian king, whoever it might be, the czar Uh, is going to be the Antichrist, because that's Gog and Magog, and they're going to invade Israel. Now, there's others right now who probably think, there's a lot of Palestinians who think that uh, Netanyahu is the the Antichrist, uh, because of what's going on in the land of Israel. And a lot of Americans are quite afraid to even think that maybe an American president could fit this bill. Uh, But... um, I think that I think that what we've learned what I've learned I learned this in the 1970s that every one of these predictions that people have made have been wrong every one of them but it they haven't seemed to learn the lesson that they ought not to be pick, picking people like this
0: We'll be right next time, right? That's what
1: the, yeah. It, is. it really is. It was like, okay, we were we were wrong about, uh, but we're right now about Putin. Yeah. It wasn't Stalin. It was Putin. <laughs> it wasn't Khrushchev or Gorbachev. So there's been this predictive, uh, speculative reading, and it is it gets at times really bizarre. Now, I, I want to read to you one of my favorite bizarre understandings of how people operate with the Book of Revelation. All right, so... This is from a book by Timothy Beale called, The Book of Revelation, A Biography, which is the history of, uh, of the reading of the Book of Revelation. It's, pr- it's a good book, okay. it's, it's fun. Since Trump's election, oh, now no. this is not a political statement, so <laughs> don't get after me for politics, but the Book of Revelation is very political. Since Trump's election in November of 2016, many have linked him to the beast of Revelation, and the number 666, noting, among other portents, that his election year, 2016, is the sum of 666 plus 666 plus 666 plus plus 6 plus 6 plus 6. (laughs) That gets to 2016. That's very convincing. (laughs) That he frequently makes the OK sign, that forms the number six. Oh no. And then now this one is really cool, that Jared Kushner, his son-in-law's real estate company owns 666 Fifth Avenue. Oh no. So there are some people who have (laughs) way too much time on their hands to figure these things out. But Ronald Reagan actually formed policy, international policy, on the basis of his reading of the Book of Revelation. And he was convinced that um, the, that, I can't remember his name right now, in Libya, that he was the Antichrist. Mm. Gaddafi. Gaddafi was the Antichrist. Hmm. And he said this, uh, when there was the coup in Libya, a sign that the day of Armageddon isn't far off, Reagan said. Everything is falling into place. It can't be long now. Ezekiel says that the fire and brimstone will be rained upon the enemies of, uh, the enemies of God's people. That must mean they'll be destroyed by nuclear weapons. <laughs> okay. So this has shaped American policy, this view. There's a, a book by mm-hmm. a man named Paul Boyer called When Time Shall Be No More, in which he demonstrated how much American international policy is connected to nice. a speculative reading of the book of Revelation, or dispensationalism is the way it is today. Hmm. And you're in Texas. There's a lot more dispensationalism here than there is in Chicagoland. So <laughs> I just thought I'd bring that up. <laughs> uh, so, but this, this has been the approach for many people. Now, many of us uh, in New Testament studies, and this isn't brand new in any way, shape, or form, Are convinced that this reading of the book of Revelation as speculation is severely mistaken. It doesn't understand the kind of literature that it is. And that we believe that the book of Revelation is actually a book about discipleship. All right? Now, if you think that that's really weird, it's only because you've been spoiled (laughs) by the other approach. And the other approach is powerful in our culture you ask an ordinary Christian in the United States and they can be mainline liberal, they can be Eastern Orthodox, they can be Roman Catholic, they can be evangelical, they can be Baptists from all sorts. And if you ask them about the end times, they will likely give you the dispensational scheme. And I've often told audiences that dispensationalism, whatever it did, mastered communication to the whole Ameri- to the whole United States. I mean, people have learned to think about the Book of Revelation in that way of thinking. It's it's everywhere, and uh, I know this because students of mine have told me they've tried to preach on Revelation and they thought they were going to lose their job if they had a continued with the ideas that they were presenting. Mm. So many people have bought into the idea that many people think that's what the Bible actually teaches. And I, and I, w- I will say this, um, because I am leaving tonight, <laughs> and that is the dispensational scheme of reading the book of Revelation did not occur until the late 19th century. Mm. So it's nothing that was ancient. Nobody read the book like that. So it is it is very modern and it is it believes a lot of things about the book of Revelation that if you read the book of Revelation you'd say that is not at all what it's talking about. For instance, there is no rapture in the book of Revelation. Well there is. But Jesus is the one who gets raptured in Revelation 12. He's That's the Greek word for rapture, harpazo. He's uh, snatched, snatched from earth to be at God's throne. That's the only person who's raptured. If the rapture is that important to Christian eschatology, it ought to show up in the book of Revelation, and it doesn't. Mm -hmm. So um, with that, I'm going to talk a while, then we'll have questions. All right, so is that okay? Oh, yeah. I'm used to being interrupted. I'm not a pastor, so um, I don't mind people asking questions while I'm going along. But um, I want to I want to move from that speculative approach to reading the book of Revelation to three themes about the book of Revelation for discipleship. Okay. And I believe that this is how we're we were meant to read the book of Revelation, not to try to. Figure out who in the modern world is doing what in the Book of Revelation, but how are we to live faithfully, following Jesus the Lamb, in a world shaped by the Empire of Rome? Hmm. What does the Christian life look like then? Yeah. Okay. That's Revelation.
2: Yeah. All right. You agree? Yeah.
1: Okay. Yeah. You can say Amen all you want. <laughs> right? All right. The first, I'm going to give three Ws. That's a, that's a W. Three of these. One, two, three. The first one is wisdom. We need wisdom. The book of Revelation needs to be read starting at chapter 17. Now my father was an English teacher and he would die. He is dead so I have have an advantage tonight. (laughs) He would die if I was telling people that you have to start reading a book at the end. He would say, "No, that's cheating." He was—he—he he knew you had to wait till the end. But um, he did put up with some of my ideas about the Book of Revelation. But deep at heart, he was a speculator, uh, and uh, every one of the thoughts that he had about what might happen and might be turned out to be wrong. And now he knows that I'm right, <laughs> and so he's—he's he's saying amen right now. But I really believe you have to start in chapter seventeen to nineteen, and this is why. Because it is the revelation of empire that is creeping into the church, and opposing the church, and so it's the problem. Uh, we use the German expression in New Testament studies of "Zitzen Leben," the setting in life, the exigencies of the book of revelation are found in that in that chapter. And this is what I've learned. If you start there in chapter 17 through 19 and study it hard to figure out what Babylon, what Rome, mm-hmm. what the whore of Babylon is like, you will never unsee it again.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It changes your perspective on the book of revelation. Yeah. To see that that's where we have to start. Mm-hmm. All right? Yeah. So I want to give seven life-changing, <laughs> evening-shifting, <laughs> world-transforming ideas about Revelation 17 and 18 yeah. and 19. Okay? The, and what are the characteristics of Babylon? The whore of Babylon, the prostitute of Babylon is an image of Rome. Mm. And the, John chooses a woman because the goddess of Rome was a was a, was Roma, and he mocks this woman in Revelation 17 through 19 by saying that she's a prostitute, a whore, and is not very kind. Yeah. All right, so John's not very kind. He's writing an apocalypse, and that's what you do. <laughs> so when my students push me on it's kind of violent, kind of, I say, apocalypse gonna apocalypse. <laughs> <laughs> That's what they do. That's the kind of, you, it's all started when he decided that it was going to be an apocalypse. And when you start that way, you got to have a battle and you got to have a loser, a big-time loser, and you got to have a big-time winner. That's the only way apocalypses work. <laughs> like, I don't watch these, but like Marvel movies. Oh, so, yeah. yeah. Don't they have that? Oh, yeah. We watch The Black Panther. Oh yes, that's the only one I've seen. But that, <laughs> it's like that. It's like the Chronicles of Narnia. Yeah. It's like Lord of the Rings. It's like Homer, yeah. Odyssey, and and the Iliad. And it's it's like any of the great uh, pieces of literature. There's evil and good. There's mm-hmm. losers and winners. All right. So here are the characteristics of Babylon in the Book of Revelation. And this is what I would say. John chose Babylon for Rome because at the time John wrote Jewish writers who were writing apocalypses like John, not none of them are alike, but other apocalypses, had begun to use Babylon as the trope for an empire that was against the people of God. Mm-hmm. There was the original Babylon that took Israel, uh, Judah into captivity. But then Babylon became Antietam, became Vietnam, became Gettysburg. It became the place of battle. And in some Jewish literature, it's Gehenna. Uh, That would be a similar place. It's a valley on the south side of the city of Jerusalem today, filled with wealthy people who live in hell. Mm. (laughs) And you can cross a bridge and you can go over hell on your way to the Dan's Boutique Hotel in Jerusalem. It's just kind of spooky for people who read the Bible and realize we're crossing the valley of hell. But that's that's what Babylon meant. Mm. For, Ju- for Jews, Babylon was timeless. Babylon could be used at any time for an empire. Babylon remains timeless today. And we uh, readers of the book of Revelation can become skilled at discerning the presence of Babylon in our world today. That's what John would want us to do. So he wants us to have the wisdom to discern the presence of Babylon in our world today. Mm -hmm. First characteristic, it's idolatrous. Over and over and over, John sees Babylon as idolatrous. This is very Jewish and it's very Christian. Because everywhere a Jew went outside of Jerusalem, they encountered the idolatries of the age. Mm -hmm. This is not theological or spiritual idolatries like money. This is actual gods and shrines everywhere in the Roman Empire. We've been to Pompeii. There were were, um, idols all over that city. Every major building had, had gods and goddesses. The ordinary home of a first century person who lived in Asia Minor, in uh, Italy, in Greece, however you want to call them, um, would have, as you come into the house, they would have a little shrine called lares, and they would have their own personal God, and there would be little offerings to those gods in their homes. This was reality, and for a Jew, it was abominable to be worshiping a thing. God was invisible, and for Christians, it was invisible. Roma was a goddess, and it's Babylon. It's the whore of Babylon, all right? So a second characteristic is opulence, and in Revelation chapter 17, when John begins to describe as i get older the print on bibles has gotten small <laughs> in revelation chapter 17 john describes the opulence of the whore of babylon in these in these words in verse 6 well i'll start in verse 4 the woman was wrapped in purple and scarlet signs of opulence and goldened with gold and a precious stone and pearls having in her hand a gold cup. Now John fills the cup with abominations, but it's a gold cup because of opulence. Hmm. All right, And I saw the woman boozed up from the blood of the devoted ones and from the blood of the Jesus' witnesses. So he sees opulence in this. And anything that ha- anything that you see in the book of Revelation can remind you, of the opulence of Rome it was known for this all the markets went to Rome mm-hmm. and all the possessions and everything that was good um, and and luxurious and tasted good and looked good ended up in Rome mm-hmm. so it was opulent third is that it was murderous in the sense of killing Christians mm-hmm. this woman um, I saw the woman, and that she had the blood of Jesus' witnesses. I was stunned with a great stunning when I saw her. So John knows that this woman has been killing believers. Now, in the book of Revelation, there are people who die because of their witness to Jesus. So murder is a crucial characteristic. Now, we can't go on and on about this, but you can. A fourth is image and branding. Rome mastered branding, and they were uh, everywhere you went. If you lived in Ephesus, if you lived in Pompeii, especially if you lived in Rome, but any city that had been reshaped by Rome, Corinth, was a wannabe Rome. Herod built cities that were like Rome, Caesarea Maritima which is on the coast. Caesarea Philippi, you know, Caesarea, this is Caesar. Uh, These are all places uh, that evoked Rome. Everywhere you went, you saw Rome's impact. The roads, the shrines, the economy, the coins, the clothing, what won and what lost, what gave you status and what didn't give you status. Big time characteristic of Rome. A Fifth characteristic was militarism. Rome was the most efficient army in the ancient world, even more superior than Assyria, which had mastered uh, military. But Rome, they they were unbelievable. They killed millions and millions and enslaved millions and millions. That's what they did. They called that peace. We call it Pax Romana. What it was was domination, victory. A sixth characteristic is that they were economically exploitive. In Revelation chapter 18, I'm not going to read this, but if you read verses 11 to 20, you will get the greatest description of trade on the waters of the Mediterranean in the ancient world. It just shows all the things that were going to Rome and up the Tiber River and into the city of Rome. Everything that was desired by the emperor, by the senators, by the equestrians, everything they wanted came to Rome. The citizens exploited the countries of others. Economic exploitation is a characteristic of empire. And finally, it was arrogance. Make Rome great again. <laughs> this, was, this, was, this was arrogance. They wanted to be number one. There is an amazing statement in Revelation 18, verses 7. It says, John says, because in her heart she says that I sit as a queen, and I am not a widow, and I will never see grief. That's arrogance, because John's message is, you're going down, and she went down, and Rome went down, and that's the message in many ways of the book of Revelation, that arrogance will meet its match. Mm -hmm. So those are the characteristics of of Babylon, And and I would say this, that if we are good readers of the book of Revelation. We don't look at these seven characteristics and say, who does this line up with in Europe, Mm -hmm. or in Israel, or Iran, or Iraq. We ask the question, where do I see this in the United States? Mm -hmm. Do my presidents evoke any of these themes? Do my governors evoke any of these themes? Does the mayor of my town evoke these themes? It's getting close. <laughs> Do the leaders in my church evoke these themes? Because Babylon creep is seen in Revelation 2 through 3 in the letters to the churches.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You start to see it. The sins called out in Revelation 2 through 3 are the sins of Babylon in 17 through 19. That's why you got to start there. Because you won't see it in 2 through 3 if you don't know it's in 17 to 19. And then you can't unsee it. All right? Yeah. All right, so that's first. Once you read Revelation through 17 through 19, you will develop a skill of, of discernment, of wisdom to recognize the presence of Babylon in our world. And it makes us critics, not cynics, but dissidents of Babylonian corruption in our world today. That is what it means to be a follower of Jesus, is to be able to recognize political corruption and name it and call it out and to stand up and speak up and speak out times loudly in order to name the presence of corruption in our world. Okay. A a dissident is not a cynic, a dissident is a discerner of corruption. Not for the sake of self-righteousness patting on the back, but for the sake of calling out corruption and working for justice and peace Mm -hmm. in our world. All right, number one, we have to have wisdom to discern Babylon. The second one is we need to become witnesses. This is one of the most dynamic words in the Book of Revelation, a witness. The Greek word is martus. The verb is martureo. From martus, we get the word martyr. A martyr is a witness with the body. In the Book of Revelation, John calls people to be witnesses with their words and their works, so that their words tell the world about the Lamb The Lion of Judah who has become the Lamb on the throne and slaughtered and will be the victorious one. And by their works, they demonstrate that they are faithful followers of Jesus, pursuing justice and naming injustices in the world. Mm -hmm. So in the book of Revelation, these are are a couple characteristics of a witness. The first is that Jesus is the paradigmatic witness. He is called the faithful witness in Revelation chapter 1. Jesus' followers are witnesses. And a witness is a see and say term. A see and say. Now if you go to London, you're gonna get on the tube and they're gonna have a sign. They're gonna make this announcement. Have you been there? Uh-huh. Been there to too? Uh-huh. They say, see it, say it, sort it. <laughs> All right? And you think, sort it? That's so British. What does that mean? <laughs> it means we'll sort it. You see it and you say it, and we'll sort it. The (laughs) Book of Revelation, it's a see it and say it, and God's going to sort it.
2: Mm.
1: (laughs) A Texan from Abilene said, there's only three things you need to know about the Book of Revelation. God's team wins. Choose your team. Don't be stupid. (laughs) He's from Abilene. (laughs) Randy Harris he's right that's I thought that's pretty good that's pretty close Uh, don't be stupid it's a see it term but at the end in the book of Revelation seeing it and saying it can lead to putting your life on the line and so uh, a man named Antipas uh, puts his life on the line in Pergamum and he dies because of his witness A, a witness is an active resistor a dissident of the way of Babylon in our world. Courageously standing up for corrupt, against corruption. Courageously standing up for justice. Courageously working for justice to disestablish injustice. In the book of Revelation, that's those are important characteristics. All right? So, now that was a short one. Now the third one is that we have to worship. So... We have wisdom, witness, and worship. Truly, it can be said in the book of Revelation that those who worship well are those who have wisdom to discern and the courage to be witnesses.
2: Hmm.
1: Worship is a transforming power in the book of Revelation. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Messiah and he will reign forever and ever. No, that's not from Handel. (laughs)
2: Uh,
1: That's from John. John chapter, uh, Revelation 11, verse 15. A great scholar on the book of Revelation is a woman named Elizabeth Schussler-Fiorenza. She asked this question. What does a reading of Revelation do to someone Who submits to its world vision.
2: Mm.
1: Because what happens in the book of Revelation. Is a series of songs. And those songs call you. To worship the lamb. To worship God on the throne. What happens to a person. Who truly. Worships God. Who truly worships the lamb. Now, in the book of Revelation, worship is a whole-body exercise, and it happens outside of 11 o'clock when the choir is singing (laughs) on Sunday morning. It's a whole body, whole mind, whole life lived in gratitude to God on the basis of redemption in Christ. Worship. Revelation has nine songs. And some people think there are 16 songs, some scholars, but what makes a scholar is the scholar disagrees with all others. (laughs) So, and we've got 8,000 of them in San Antonio this weekend, and if you go downtown, you can see them, just by how they dress. You'll know, that's a professor right right there. He hasn't even heard of. He's still wearing polyester. I'll just put it there. Okay. <laughs> All right. They don't, they're not wearing uh, z- uh, those suits that you, we used to wear in the, you know, where you wear green pants, polyester suits. Yeah. We're not, what are they called? Leisure. Leisure. No, Nobody's wearing that still, but it's close. <laughs> All right. Nine songs. We often call these hymns instead of songs. But I don't think that term is at all accurate to the book of Revelation. These hymns are written for people who live in a world of comfort. And they come to church and they open a hymn book and sing those songs. The songs in the book of Revelation were not the music of the comfortable. They were the cries of the oppressed. They were not songs of simple praise but pleadings for justice. The songs in Revelation 6 through 16, 6 through 19, interrupt the so-called judgments of God in this world. And they're annoying how many interruptions there are in the book of Revelation. When you read 6 through 16, you think, would you just get on with it? Just when it gets cool, you know, and the other team's going to lose, you know, the Yankees. <laughs> <laughs> Just when you think they're going to lose, he interrupts you with something else. And we drop over here and we get a sidebar here. And these are interruptions for the sake of the believers in those seven churches in Western Asia Minor because they know that these are going to be difficult days. And they need to hear songs of praise to interrupt the tragedies, and the laments of what they're going to experience in this world. Mm -hmm. They remove the listeners, the singers, the believers, the worshipers, from the conditions on earth to the more than real realities of heaven, of the new Jerusalem. It's realer than the real. They transform oppressed believers from fearful disciples into dissidents who have the courage to challenge Babylon. That's what these songs do. They put starch in people's backs. Here's one of them from chapter 15. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the Nations. L-O-L. Nobody believes that. Do you know how many believers there were in Western Asia Minor when John wrote this book of Revelation? You went to seven, or you know how many? There are. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> do you know how many there were? A couple hundred, maybe five hundred, and yet they think that their God is the King of the Nations, and they know their numbers. These are small groups, all right, mm-hmm. house groups. And they know that there are going to be believers by the time this is all over that are countless innumerable hosts of people from all the nations of the world, all the languages of the world, all the countries of the world. They're going to be worshiping the Lamb. Where did they get that courage? Hmm. This is an amazing part of the book of Revelation. If you just read it, you think, where did that come from? Not many people who start a house church movement... Imagine millions and millions of people becoming believers. Now, some of them, they're a little loony. They think that that many are going to join them, but they're not going to. But in the book of Revelation, this is what happens. Who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name throughout all these nations? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. All right? You know what these songs are like? in Revelation? Spirituals. These are spirituals. These are the songs of believers who like the spirituals in the American slavery tradition, who took the theology and the words of the slave masters and flipped the script and sang the same songs And the slave masters thought that was so nice of them to be conforming to their ways, but they saw them as the language of subversion, Mm -hmm. the language of dissidence, that someday we're going to get over that river. Mm -hmm. And they called it the Jordan River, but they knew it was the Ohio River. (laughs) But the slave master thought it was the Jordan River. It was really nice that they were singing about going to heaven when they die. But they were singing about some night we're going to find freedom and we're going to get to St. Catharines, Ontario, in Canada and we're going to be free. The songs of the book of Revelation are like those kinds of spirituals. They're subversive songs that flip the script. The slaves of America heard the scriptures in white sermons and white songs. They grabbed those sermons and those scriptures, remade them, Reactualized them, and created a new reality, a new world in the spirituals that they sang. That's what John is doing in the book of Revelation. They're not spirituals. They're like spirituals. They have the same social and rhetorical function of taking the vision of Rome and flipping it upside down, but using their words, making them think that things are just okay, but they know that things are going to change that God's team is going to win. Nine songs in the Book of Revelation that are subversive spirituals teaching disciples how to be dissidents in the world. If you sing those songs and sing them the way they did, you become a dissident in the Roman Empire. You know what Babylon is suddenly like. I looked over Jordan and what did I see? coming for to carry me home. That's the Ohio River, folks. It's not (laughs) Jordan. A band of angels coming after me, coming for to carry me home to freedom, not to heaven. Freedom. That was the song of the spirituals. Worship is not sitting in church with a Mona Lisa smile on Sunday morning. (laughs) And if you're of a certain age, you probably don't even clap or raise your (laughs) hands, but you do have a little smile. That's a Mona Lisa smile. Worship is to have the wisdom to discern Babylon and to witness against it and to live for the lamb because you know the lamb is going to be victorious in the end. It's the whole body. Okay, so here's here's my conclusion for you tonight. Our everyday challenge for Babylon is the news. The news persuades us that it is sorting what is most important and the truth of our world. The news obsesses over candidates for office who are vying for power in the seats of power. It obsesses over violence, over sports, Some of which are good. (laughs) good. Baseball is a heavenly game. (laughs) But not the Astros. (laughs) She told me you're an Astros. We cheer for the Cleveland Guardians because our son is the senior scout for the Cleveland Guardians in baseball, so we're biased and we're going to stay that way. (laughs) When he was with the Cubs, we cheered for the Cubs, and they won the World Series. And when he became a Guardian, he put away childish things, (laughs) and now we're cheering for the Guardians. So, all right. Our news obsesses over weather and over tragedies and nightmares. The book of Revelation has a completely different sorting. The dragon is alive and well. The dragon uses wild things, the beasts. Babylon is timeless, but the lamb has won the victory over death and the dragon. New Jerusalem will replace Babylon, and dissidents will win over those who wear the mark of the beast. So we have to make our choice. Do we want to be on Team Lamb or <laughs> Team Dragon? Okay. All right.
0: That's
2: awesome. That's all
1: I got. Uh,
0: and I have a few questions for you. And then I also want us to open it up to the floor, because I'm sure there's plenty of questions. Because the Book of Revelation, like you said, a lot of us just um, stay, you know, as far away from we can about it or, or on the other end. It's all we want to read, right? right. Um, So it's really hard to read the book of Revelation cautiously and faithfully and with discernment, right? And that's exactly what you're talking about. And so I appreciate that you are leading the way and helping us do that. But how did you get into studying the book of Revelation? How did this become a project for you? How did this pique your interest where you weren't afraid of just jumping into the deep end with this? Um, How did this come about for you?
1: When I was in high school, I read, so I was a senior in high school, fall of 1971. Chris was my girlfriend. <laughs> I read Salem Curban's Guide to Survival. Now, I bet you've not heard of Salem Curban. Salem Curban was Hal Lindsey before Hal Lindsey became Hal Lindsey. <laughs> the late great planet Earth sold millions, 12 million copies I think it sold. Salem Kerban was doing that before Hal Lindsey, and that is he wrote a book called Guide to Survival. It was for people who ended up in the tribulation and didn't know what was going on, and this was a back-pocket book that would give you a guide to it. So I got into Revelation. Then in college, I got in trouble because I decided that Bob Gundry was right about a post-trib rapture, and my pastor thought I'd gone liberal because I was post-trip. <laughs> he really did. He really did. And uh, I told him, well, that's what the Bible says, I think. So, And then um, by the time I got to seminary in 1976, I was convinced that this was a bunch of looniness. all this speculation about the, mm-hmm. the rapture. And so I I started to put it on the back burner. And when I was doing my doctoral work at the University of Nottingham in England, uh, one of my assignments, sort of, was to read through all the Jewish pseudepigrapha. So the book of Enoch, you know, a couple books of Enoch and Barak and all these other books. By the time I was done with this, I thought, these people are nuts who are reading the book of Revelation, literally. Mm -hmm. They don't understand that this is more like fiction. It's more like uh, Lord of the Rings than it is like some kind of literal prediction of things. Well, I knew that was enough to get me in trouble, and I wouldn't get a job, so I just didn't talk about it. (laughs) And I taught for uh, 12 years at a seminary, then 17 years at a college, and at the undergraduate, every year, at least three or four times, I would have at least one lecture on the book of Revelation, and I would listen to what my students were saying, which was this stuff is weird. I or I know everything about the book of Revelation because I saw a thief in the night, or I led left behind books. So I was interested in this, and then um, I wasn't teaching the book of Revelation, but at North at North Park, no Northern Seminary, where I am now. Um, I decided one time I was going to teach the book of Revelation. I had a really good graduate assistant work with me, and my goal was sort of. Can I pull off what I think about the book of Revelation in a way that is compelling to people who are working in churches so that they would be willing to go back and talk about it in their church? Mm -hmm. So that was sort of my goal. So I taught it, and we were halfway through the class, and I said to Cody Matchett, and he wrote the book with me, um, I said, we've got a book here, and I want you to help me write it. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to call it Revelation for the rest of us to rhyme with Festivus for the rest of us.
2: <laughs>
1: and that's sort of what it is. That's awesome. It's for the rest of us who don't read it the other way. So, <laughs> so that's how it was. That's
2: okay. awesome.
1: Very yeah. cool. Um, pretty, clever, though, right? yeah, so right? pretty clever, though. Yeah, that is pretty clever. It's fun. And a lot of people don't know that. But when you say it, they go, oh, yeah, I see oh, yeah. why you did that. Yeah.
0: So. <laughs> um and you've you've talked about this, right? That you you started to have a, a different view, and and your professor thought, well, you know, you've there's this book when we we've it has caused divisions because of our reading of it, right? Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. which that in and of itself should probably make us stop and think. Okay, maybe we're if this is causing all these crazy divisions, right? And and really staunch ones, then maybe we should. Pump the brakes a little bit, right, and think about maybe we should read this differently. But what damage have you seen um, that's been done by those divisions?
1: And um, the way they've read the Book of Revelation. Yeah. yeah. You know, let, let me say this: when you read the Chronicles of Narnia, you know, you it's pretty. It's not. Uh, you don't have to be an adept reader to recognize that Aslan's a bit like Jesus. <laughs> But, I mean, who does Eustace stand for? Mm. When you start identifying Eustace and Cheap Reap-a-cheep. and Cheap's rapier, is that what he had, a rapier? <laughs> when you start figuring out what that stands for and who that might be today, then you'd say, that is just weird. Leave it alone. That's what I think about Revelation. Mm. So I can't remember your question now.
0: Oh, no, the, the damage that's been done. Okay, when we... right.
1: here's the Here's what's happened. The result of, of it is, I've read a lot of books about the book of Revelation. People don't talk about discipleship. So when I say to you that this is a book about discipleship, a lot of you would be surprised because no one's taught that. They've taught you to figure out who's going to do what in the book of Revelation, and you got to know that you won't be there, so don't worry about it.
2: <laughs>
1: so it teaches, it teaches escapism from this world and a lack of responsibility in this world. Mm -hmm. The book of Revelation does not do that. Mm -hmm. It says in the end, God's going to win. But you've got to be, we've got to be witnesses till then, calling out injustices and standing for the Lamb. So the damage that has been done is that uh, not only have we learned to read it in a way that teaches us irresponsibility, Mm -hmm. it has also taught us, not to have a political theology. Hmm. We live in a world that is partisan in politics. Christians are partisans. That is, they either line up with Democrats or Republicans. Most people line up with one or the other. I think Jesus would say, how about lining up with the Lamb and calling your shots? Sometimes the Democrats get it right and sometimes the Republicans get it right. Sometimes the Republicans get it wrong and the Democrats get it wrong. Mm -hmm. Do you have the courage to Mm -hmm. say that? Partisans do not have that courage. We do not have, evangelical Americans do not have a political theology. Mm -hmm. A theology shaped by the book of Revelation makes us discerners of Babylon Mm -hmm. in the world and faithful witnesses to the Lamb. Yeah, yeah. That's 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 the biggest disappointment for me of what's happened. Mm. I've lived, I've watched it. Yeah. The rise of dispensationalism.
0: And it's, yeah, and like you said, when we talk about the kingdom of God, right, we talk about it like it's already and it's not yet, right? And when we read all of scripture, it speaks to that, right? It speaks to the kingdom of God is already and especially in the gospels, right? We're seeing the kingdom of God in Jesus physically walk the earth, but he's also constantly saying, but it's also not yet. I'm also coming back, right? And then we take that reading of all of scripture and then we kind of drop it when we're reading the book of Revelation and we say, "Well, this is just about the not yet." <laughs> yeah. Right? But It's good. But it's sure it gives us a picture of the not yet, right? And that's that's important, but it's also about the right now, right? And yeah. we've we've dropped that. And that's to pick it back up now when like one of the other questions i had for you was there's i think it's hard cuz we can get lost in the the imagery or the back and forth like you said with all of the songs i i tried listening to it the other day right i was like well maybe i sh- i should listen to it instead of read it maybe that'll help me understand no that's almost worse because if you if you if you space out for more than 2 seconds oh this is totally different now right and so well it's it's a challenging read
1: it's almost and like so to read Revelation, I think we have to read it aloud. To think mm-hmm. about this, this yeah. book was read aloud to seven different churches mm-hmm. by someone. Yeah. And the person who read it didn't read it the way most people read the church, the Bible, on Sunday morning. Mm-hmm. They they performed it. yeah, And probably had the whole book memorized. And were coached and mentored by John. For when you read this book in Ephesus look at this guy.
2: Mm.
1: Keep your eye on him the whole time. I want to know how he's responding.
2: Yeah. I want
1: to know if he's irritated because I hope he is. <laughs> so that—that that is, I think, you know, for instance, if you read Revelation 12, mm-hmm. uh, Revelation is made for people who have an artistic ability. They might, they might get cringy at times, but apocalypse got apocalypse. So you just have to <laughs> Okay, you just have to live with it. But <laughs> Revelation is meant for people with an imagination. So it's meant to be read. and for John had an imagination. And as he reads, as this was read, the people would sit there and they might have closed their eyes and imagine what John was saying. A great authenticating sign was seen in heaven. A woman having been wrapped with the sun and the moon under her feet, and a 12-star crown on her head, and having a child in the womb, she cries out, groaning in birth and being tormented to give birth." Uh, you saw it, didn't you? you saw, that's what John wants right there. Yeah. That's imagination. Yeah. But it, you can only take a couple of them, <laughs> and then you have to put it down, yeah. because it's just so intense mm-hmm. and back and forth. And then there was another authenticating sign. I love this. Was seen in heaven. And look, a great fire red sea dragon having seven heads and ten horns. And on his head seven diadems. And his tail drags a third of heaven's stars. And he tossed them into the land. The dragon has stood before the woman who's about to give birth. So that whenever the child is birthed, he could gobble it down. All right, She birthed a man's son who's about to pastor all the ethnic groups with an iron staff. Her child was snatched, there's the rapture, snatched to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness where she had there a place prepared from God so there they may nurture her for 1,260 days. Mm-hmm. Right. Now, in the book of Revelation, this woman, is in chapter 12, she starts out it sounds like Israel 12 stars then it's Mary Mary gives birth to Jesus all right you can't say that's not Mary only Protestants don't think it's Mary <laughs> and then at the end of the chapter it's, it's she's a she's the church so if you're trying to figure out who she is you lose she morphs like Michael Jackson and Paul McCartney <laughs> in that move in that video. All right. She just goes for you think, whoa, what happened to her? Where is she? Where's Israel? Where's Mary? Where who is it? That's what happens, and that's what you're supposed to experience. Hmm. Revelation twelve about the woman is the whole book of Revelation in one chapter. It's all you gotta read. <laughs> you get the whole thing right there. Okay. Yeah. Right.
2: That's
0: awesome. And that's do you have and this now I'm I didn't actually send you this question ahead of time, but as we're thinking about this and as we're thinking about Revelation as a book about discipleship, do you have tips for, I know you've said start with chapter 17, right? But as we're saying, because I feel like it would be easy to leave this and say, okay, I'm going to read Revelation, right? And then to get home and say, oh, no, right? you're two yeah. chapters in and kind of the whole structure falls apart. And you give a lot of great um, kind of organization in this book, but do you have some some tips for helping us as we read through Revelation, whether that's sources or just ways of thinking about it where we can stay focused on that?
1: Well, I would say Revelation, you have to start with 17 and 19, but yeah. see it as a drama with a play mm. with a playbill. Mm. I have the playbill in, in the book of you know yeah. who's on team dragon, who's on team lamb. <laughs> we went to we went to see I can't, Hamilton. Mm-hmm. And I saw the playbill. I thought, "That's Revelation. We got. I got to do a playbill for Revelation." All right. So I would say that number two, uh, other than Revelation 17 and 19, figure out the playbill. These are the characters at work on mm-hmm. the stage. All right, and so you got to get used to it. You got to read it a couple times before you get a feel for it. But here's another thing that's so important: when you read Revelation, feel what you feel. Mm-hmm. If you think that vision of the woman in 17 and 18 is a little too much, it's okay. It is a little too much. And we would not write that that way today. But feel what you feel. Be aware of what it's doing to you internally. And I would say be slow, but keep your eye on discipleship Mm. and away from speculation because every one of these major visions are just episodes. They're not, uh, if you're trying to figure out what's gonna happen next, you're gonna lose. It's it's a big picture and something's happening with every one of those three major, the bowls, the trumpets, et cetera, those judgments or disciplines, something's happening with those. Pay attention to the result of what happens here. And then I think the other thing is realize that when you get to Revelation 17 through 19, evil is eliminated, and in 20 through 22, the new Jerusalem comes. Mm-hmm. And it's really weird. Revelation is a 1,400-mile square. I mean, who wants to live in that? That's, <laughs> that's an apartment a lot higher than they have in Korea. You know? <laughs> it's really up there. 1400 miles. And then you realize it's about 1,400 miles from Jerusalem to Rome. Mm. And this is a square. So they've just out, yeah. outdone, outbuilt Rome <laughs> with a really weird-looking building. But at the same time, um, this is what the goal is. And the goal is a city that's flourishing and fed by God that doesn't even need the sun for light because the sun is... Of God is the light.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And you don't need walls and gates for protection. Mm-hmm. The gates will always be open for yeah. all to stream in to this city. Yeah. So and that's all awesome. the stuff that went to Rome has all been repurposed yeah. in New Jerusalem. Yeah. So that's justice is established.
0: Yeah. And that's and I have one more question and then I'm gonna open it up to the floor. Um like you said, if we're reading Revelation as part of the whole narrative of Scripture, um, what does Revelation tell us, maybe in a, in a brief way, how, what does Revelation tell us about what, what God is like and the character of God um, or, the, or the character of Jesus himself? What does it speak to um, when we're thinking about who God is? Because we know that every book of the Bible is saying something about the yeah. character of God. Yeah.
1: Well, God is, uh, has promised that injustice and evil will be eliminated mm. and that justice and goodness will be established forever and ever. So that's the, the big vision of Revelation and that God is using the lamb. It is so strange that the conquering, you, know, you it's in Revelation 4 and 5, all of a sudden you see this lion. You think, now we got, now we got a victor. (laughs) And you look, and the next thing you know, the lion is a lamb. Mm -hmm. Well, that's the opposite end of the spectrum. Instead of a lion, it's a lamb that reveals the way God works in this world. Mm -hmm. And the lamb is conquers by the sword out of his mouth. Yes, there's victory, and it's kind of gory at times, but it's because the victory is it's a metaphorical victory of the word of God in this world of witnessing rather than uh, a battle. So the, revel- the idea that mm-hmm. there's going to be a, a war in the valley of Armageddon, mm-hmm. if you've ever been there, you realize you can't get blood up to a horse's neck because there's too many leaks in the valley. <laughs> there's all these streams that would go out of it, so it just doesn't work, it's silly. <laughs> It's not literal, but it's just an attempt to say that there's going to be an awful battle in this world. Evil does not want to surrender to good. Tov will win, Mm. is the message of Revelation, Mm. eventually. Tov is the word for good in the the Hebrew Bible.
2: Mm.
0: Yeah. That's awesome. And so I'm sure there's plenty of questions out here too. So um, would you be okay with opening up to a few more? I'm a um, professor. So. <laughs> yeah, Danya. I was wondering um, if there's a specific translation or a revelation to read, mm. or just read all of the translations of yeah. revelation. Mm. That's a good question.
1: Yeah, it is. It is a good question. And I think... Um, translations depend upon what you're looking for. If you're looking for a fast read, you get something that is as close to the way we talk in English today as possible. NIV, NRSV, UE, the updated edition, CEB, those translations. If you want to be slowed down, you have to read a translation that's more literal. I have a recommendation. It's called the Second Testament because I translated it. <laughs> I promise it will slow you down. <laughs> yes. Well, it's twofold. I love what you said regarding who we are to be as discerners in battle. Now, my life was changed by reading the book of King James' Gospel, so thank you so much
2: for that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'll start with the first one I hope I don't get to the second one. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, I think that our prophetic critique of the corruption of Babylon in our world is most effective when it's rare when people are used to our voice being let's say I don't mean positive, but good. You know, we're talking about Jesus. We're talking about redemption. And we're talking about things that are healthy. And then when we turn on that to say something negative, we're heard more prophetically. Someone who's always strident is not listened to. They tune them out. If you're always complaining, you know, it's like, little boy who cried wolf, we're not going to pay attention. Mm-hmm. So I think that we need to be careful. And then I think we're best if we decide to pick on one or two topics rather than everything. So let's say that we pick on racism and we call attention to racism in our culture. Or we pick on economic injustice like Jesus did with his jubilee vision in Luke 4. Or we, we pick out... Um, the injustice of power in, in our culture, the lack of economic justice for the poor in our society who have wages that barely allow them to eke out existence. Is that Christian? You know, this sort of thing. But I think we can, I think if, if all we see is negative, I think uh, a prophetic critique is not going to be heard.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay, now on the literal. You know, there's the book of Revelation is filled with images. We have all these bizarre interpretations because it's got bizarre images, and John doesn't say. By the way, this is what I mean. He doesn't do that. (laughs) He gives you this image and says, "What do you think?" It's like I remember when one of my students in a Jesus class. She was an art student. She comes to me. She says, "I don't want to write a paper. Can I do a drawing?" I went okay, but I don't know how to grade a a drawing. I like words. So she comes to me at the end of the semester, and right after class, she holds this beautiful picture up to me, and she says, what do you think? I said, what were you trying to say? And she said, I'll never forget, what do you see? I thought, well, that's not fair. (laughs) I don't know what I'm supposed to see, but that's that's what John does. He doesn't tell you what it means. So there's going to be ambiguity, but, to think that these things are literal is a failure to understand how this kind of literature operates. We do not think there is a place called Narnia, but we've been there, right? And going to New Zealand is not entering into the Lord of the Rings. I mean, you can, you can fly over those places, and they're cool looking, But it was created, a scene, by by an artist. And that's what John does. He creates scenes, and he wants us to enter into his artwork. And there's going to be ambiguity, but literalism, flat-footed literalism, ruins the book. It's a dynamic that he creates us. He puts us in a place to say, what do you see? This is what I saw. All right? Mm. Um okay, allegory has a very technical meaning. <laughs> <laughs> this yeah. is an apocalypse. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it is. Well, I mean
2: there yeah. There are utopian divinerie. Mm, yeah. John did Revelation with pictures.
0: Mm-hmm. With
2: yeah. With pictures. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. That's
1: right. So it's in is based
0: Yeah. yeah.
1: It is. Yeah. That's good, Devin. But he does yeah. it with words, so you have to imagine
0: <laughs> that's, an that's, that's an adult picture. Yeah, an adult? Yeah. <laughs> it's good. It's Hello. good. It's Laura. Yes. Yeah.
3: Mm-hmm. <laughs> The speculative,
0: speculative yeah. Challenge accepted. Conquer revelation. <laughs> Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving.
1: This is not. This is not Thanksgiving conversation. <laughs> <laughs> okay. How now, do you start that yeah. Conversation? All right. now yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not <begin>
3: Thanksgiving. But <laughs>
1: That's good. Okay, I, I have an advantage of this. I teach students, and we assign readings, and they have to read them. It's kind of fun, you know? So, and we have, we do these theoretical exp- uh, uh, opportunities in classes where we say, this is how a preterist reads it, this is how a dispensationist reads it, this is how an amillennialist reads it. So those are ways of teaching Empathy at some level for another viewpoint, and one of the problems is, is that people who have one viewpoint of the Book of Revelation will encounter another book, another interpretation, and it threatens their existence, as if they're wrong and therefore they've, you know, they've failed. And uh, I think that that's unfortunate. So I believe that it's important to teach and to have an opportunity to discuss how other people read the book of Revelation. I don't think the solution is a phone conversation with your mom on the way home and try to (laughs) convince her. But to say, you know, some people have different readings in the book of Revelation, and it's been a historic practice in the church to read it this way, and it really encourages us to be faithful disciples of Jesus. That's pretty safe. Now, for some people, it's not safe, like my pastor in college, that was not even safe, because I was post-trib, so therefore I was in trouble. (laughs) But I I really do believe that's the only, it's got to break down by getting some empathy for other positions to where you see the virtues of other interpretations of the book of Revelation. Mm -hmm. And to, to say, you know, Mom, nobody believed that until the end of the 19th century, and it was kind of an odd duck over there in Plymouth, uh, England, who was an Irishman by the name of John Nelson Darby, who came up with this stuff. Yeah. So, um, and he couldn't read Greek or Hebrew. Uh, so he, he, was, he, was defi- he, was, he was definitely making some serious mistakes with language interpretation. Um, but I don't think that's the solution. I, I really do think it's an opportunity to witness to other people. Here's my experience with this. This is a different one. I grew up being taught that if you didn't think that Isaiah wrote the whole book of Isaiah, you probably weren't a Christian. <laughs> okay? A lot of people believe that. I, the, the most powerful young Christian man I met one summer in Austria was a student at Marburg University where Boltmont was a teacher. And he told me that he didn't believe that Isaiah wrote the whole book. And I said to myself, he's so godly and such a good Christian. This can't be important. (laughs) That was important to me. I was 18, 19, 20 years old. Yeah. Um, And I would say if you can encounter people who live dynamic Christian lives, who have different interpretations, you're going to be in better shape. Mm. So that's good.
0: One is that? This is kind of a follow up question to that. Um When I read things like this, and this has come up a lot in at midweek, if something seems mysterious, I'm like, well, it's mysterious. I'm not going to try to figure that one out, you know. And I kind of walk away from it, saying, I just won't even, won't even dabble in that. Is it? Do you think it's still worth not only taking that speculative view, but discerning what you know? Like you said, am I? you know, what view of those kind of different viewpoints are there? Like, is it still worth investing that time to kind of discern what what I think, even if I'm holding it very loosely? Is it still worth that time, or do you think that's...
1: Um, well, I think it's it's worth... All right, now look. Most of you are not going to ever care about the book of Ezekiel. <laughs> I was just trying to ask a question, actually. Yeah. <laughs> we do love Ezekiel. All that's, right, yeah. so... so I I wouldn't say that it's important to figure out your view of Revelation Yeah. real important it is important to have a theology that is taught by the book of Revelation that gives us a political theology of what it means to follow the Lamb Mm -hmm. in the empire and we live in empire Yeah. so that's important Um, but uh, if you decide that you want to study this a little bit more then I think it's there's lots of books out there like Michael Gorman's book Revelation for the rest of us. They're going to give to you the way different people read the book as well. Mm -hmm. Michael Gorman does more of that than I do. We do have sidebars that clarify these things. Merrill Tenney wrote a book on this, like reading Revelation or something like that. And he went through each viewpoint, a -hmm. chapter each one. It was education. Yeah. That's what it is. And you can develop empathy for for a different viewpoint. Yeah. So. Yeah, that's good. And then sort of figure out where you are. Yeah. Yeah, please. And just agree with me. Okay. <laughs>
0: I'll email you and see if I yeah. pass the test. <laughs>
1: Yes, I think it is, it, is, it is valuable to read Isaiah you know, the little apocalypse in Isaiah Daniel Zechariah some of Jeremiah Ezekiel Daniel those are the books that will help so will first Enoch alright so but here, here's the thing John didn't have those books in a library on the island of Patmos John John's mind was so saturated with the prophetic books of the Old Testament that when he saw what he saw and heard what he heard, especially when he saw what he saw, that when he put pen to paper to describe what he saw, he had to use Scripture's language. Hmm. He did not know how to describe it without the Bible. The odd thing is, He almost never quotes the Old Testament. But one scholar has come up with 375 echoes of the Old Testament in the book of Revelation without quoting the Old Testament. Now, there aren't very many people who can do this. People who grew up with the King James Version of the Bible can do it because it's so strange. It's not our English. So when they talk, I grew up in a church where everybody prayed in the King James English. My father died at 91 and he was still praying in the King James English. But he never talked in the King James English except for when he taught Shakespeare. Okay. <laughs> Other than that, he had, and the old people in our church could all have conversations with one another in King James English. That's what John does. When he starts describing, he reverts to the language of the prophets. I don't think John is saying what Ezekiel predicted is happening. He's saying, the, I'm seeing something like what Ezekiel saw. Mm. Okay. And sometimes it seems like it's the same thing.
2: Mm. Yeah.
0: Any other questions? Yeah? Getting back to the political aspect,
2: when you have <laughs> yeah,
0: that's, that's a great question.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Sin boldly. <laughs> that's what Luther said, right? I don't know what uh, the context. Okay. Um, about 20 years ago, because of the culture war of American evangelicals, I made a decision not to vote for a president. I don't mind voting locally, but I don't want to participate in the partisanship that has occurred since Reagan's election among evangelicals. I don't want to be a part of that. I want to be able to maintain a distance and not a disinterestedness, but a distance so that I can see what's good about Biden and what's good about Obama and what's good about Reagan and what's good about Bush. I didn't mention another guy. (laughs) But um, I I think that we can never, we're never going to pick a politician that probably agrees with us entirely. So if I voted for a president, this is what I would vote for, and, and this is all I would probably make it as the foundation. Which of these two candidates is going to encourage the Christian church the most? Or allow the Christian Church to be the Christian Church the most. Hmm. That I I would look at it that way, and I and I don't I I, I will start with this that I don't think that it's the it, the Republicans or the Democrats have an advantage on this, but I would look at the one candidate and say, which one of these is going to allow me to be as much a witness as I want to be the the most? Which one will help the most?
2: Hmm. Yeah. and power, so if you
0: have pick the I see what you're saying.
2: Yeah,
1: yeah I'm, I think that, that, I mean, most people pick things on the basis of their partisanship, their history, you know, abortion, some political angle that they really think is important. I have friends who pick exclusively on the basis of peace, which one will be the most peaceful, mm-hmm. the least warmongering of all. And um, I, I don't want to get into that debate about which one to pick, but I, I, I think that we don't have an evangelical theology in America that has taught the church how to think politically in a way that is Christian.
3: Yeah,
0: yeah, that's good. That's really good. Okay. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
3: So you have mentioned about that, you know, our everyday challenge is the news. And sometimes I have problems with that because I, I, you know, I try to listen to multiple people's news. A lot of times they say the same things for the most part. Um, so how do you, what would you suggest to gauge, other than you know, our Christian view, to gauge what is true in
1: mm-hmm. the news? Because sometimes... Yeah. My wife is the best news watcher in the world. I could just ask her about news and she knows what's going on. But she studies it. And so she can look at this and say, they're lying. <laughs> and so I think, you know, it's just listening to sound bites is dangerous. Is that when they bring something up, watch it, follow it, listen to what the other person is saying. Try to, get, okay, so listen to CNN and Fox, if you can. Uh, If you can listen to both, some some people can't stand, abide the other side. But listen to both, say, what are they saying about what's going on? I mean, how is, like, like this, why did Joe Biden give such unequivocal support for Israel for what it's doing right now in Gaza? I mean, is that Christian? Or should we be fighting for what's just for Palestinians and Israelis, and should we say, you know, bombing the daylights out of that place in the long term is probably not going to make for peace. all right, so what is a Christian response to this? now, if you listen to one group, they'll say, Well, Hamas has done this, and they did. It was evil what they did but but um and loading up their their facilities underneath hospitals and where children play is evil but how does israel respond to that in a way that's not evil on top of evil and i think that you have to pay attention to the news pretty carefully to make to render really solid moral judgments on some of this stuff and you have to read about the palestinians and the israelis and what israelis did when they took over the country and how palestinians have suffered and how palestinians are complicit and how israelis are complicit i don't want to line up with either one of them i think that you know i think that they need peace mm-hmm. and it's a it's a human embarrassment to have people hate one another this much for this long Like they did in Ireland, it's you think this is wrong, in Ireland you know it's Christian on the top and Christian on the bottom, Catholics and Protestants hate one another, have hated one another. This is an embarrassment to the church as well. Mm -hmm. Fight for peace.
3: (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
0: Yeah, it's it's a challenging Donnie I think what your question is getting at is we're trying to use discernment right but it's like a layered you know it's almost like a how do I have discernment about you know even just the source for you know some of these things and that's that's not a issue that I have perfectly figured out either but I think thinking about it in those terms, right? To say, okay, I need to I need to think about this well, so I'm gonna go about this slowly, and I'm gonna know that not everything that this newscaster is saying is 100% true, right? I think even just having that cautious listening, but still being willing to listen, right? That's, it's challenging to do both, but it's worth it. You know? <laughs> Well, I don't want to take your your whole night, but Scott, we are so grateful. Can we? Thanks, Scott.
1: Well, it was fun to be with you. Yeah. This is like a class.